The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. The Iranian terrorist that the left is so in love with. Well, he has a replacement. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, Kassam Suleimani, who we talked about on the abbreviated podcast that we did last week. Welcome back. Uh, welcome to 2020, by the way, if I haven't had a chance to tell you that. But I wanted to get back into the the stream of information flow and put out a podcast. So we didn't do a full-length podcast last week. We just kind of did a like 20, 25-minute one. But we covered the whole embassy attack and then the death of Kasim Suleimani. I guess Kasim, Kasam, whatever. Well, he was number two under the Ayatollah in Iran's military, but he was basically the leader of Hezbollah, which makes him a terrorist. And the left went on and on. They didn't call him an austere scholar like they did al-Baghdadi over there with ISIS, but they eulogized him and made it seem like everybody was going to go to war. Apparently, the social the, uh, selective service website crashed the day after that happened because all these millennials were looking it up and they had to go online and say, Hey, we're sorry that it's going to be back up online any, any second now. So these kids think we're going to war because we took out this general, or this terrorist, and they don't realize the background that he had. They don't realize how much better of a world it is now that this guy's eviscerated. And the best part about it was how he was returned to Iran. He was brought back, his body laid in the back of an American-made Chevy pickup truck no kidding like a rock oh died in a rock <laughs> so Soleimani gets brought back in a carriage built by american ingenuity that to me sums it up but the media went on and on about this guy you know let's let's talk a little bit about uh Soleimani before we get into who his replacement is check this out from the new york times this goes back to 2014 I'm sorry, New York Post, 2014, June 20th, 2014. The shadowy Iranian spy chief who helped plan Benghazi. Right. Qasem Soleimani, head of the Quds Force, which if you know, if you follow the show, we studied about the Quds about over a year ago, right around the time that Syria had another gas attack, which was basically Al-Qaeda gassing its citizens and blaming it on Assad. Well, we also went through a document that was provided to us by Crisis Intel, which is a foreign policy think tank. And they go through and talk about how the Quds forces are basically Hezbollah, Hamas. They're littered in Lebanon and Pakistan. They're all over the place. They're on our southern border, which we can get into. They're helping MS what is it, MS-13 to drug run through our southern border to run humans and operatives along with the trafficked individuals and they're using the might of the uh 
of the drug cartels, but they're arming the drug cartels with their weaponry. So it's, it's a really insane situation. But Kasim Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, an organization that acts like a combination CIA and Green Beret for, for Iran, and a man who has orchestrated a campaign of chaos against the United States and around the world. He's an ira- um, radical Islamic ar- army leader. And with that army, they marched across Iraq, making the deal with the devil. And he's allied with Baghdad. Well, the Shiite-friendly government in Iraq, which was set up by Maliki, which we talked about in the podcast last time, you know, Maliki was put in there because he was looked as somebody who was vehemently against Saddam Hussein. But what happened? He ended up turning it into a little Iran, a little Tehran in Baghdad. Well, they coincide with America's hope that the country does not fall apart. Speaking of Iraq, but don't be fooled. It's only a partnership of convenience and one that won't last. Iran wants chaos. They want to generate anti-American anger, radicalize the rebels and maintain a climate of war. A former Iranian intelligence chief for Western Europe told this individual who wrote for the New York Post. They are very serious about this. They want to damage the reputation of the United States as a freedom-loving country in the eyes of the Arabs. Soleimani has orchestrated attacks in everywhere from Lebanon to Thailand. The U.S. Department of Justice accuses him of trying to hire a Mexican drug cartel to blow up the Saudi ambassador to the United States while he was in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, Soleimani was involved in an even more direct attack on the U.S., the killing of Ambassador Christopher Stevens in Benghazi, Libya. In Libya, Iran wanted to block U.S. influence, which they saw as a threat, the intelligence chief said. They saw the uprising against Gaddafi and the Arab Spring more generally as an opportunity to accomplish this. The CIA annex in Benghazi housed an NSA listening post, which we're going to get into the NSA and the FBI and how they're not only listening over there in Benghazi, they're listening to you and I. But anyways, the CIA annex in Benghazi housed an NSA listening post that secretly monitored communications of jihadi groups. Late in the afternoon on Monday, July 30th, 2012, the annex ears picked up chatter in Persian uh, areas between a part of a pair of operators from the Quds Force. The NSA translator brought an English transcript of their conversation to the chief of base. He laughed when he read through it. Looks like our boys are on time, he said. The chief of base had been given intelligence that Iran would send operatives into the area. He tasked several agents in his employ who worked for the Zetan militia, which ran the Benghazi airport with tracking the seven Iranians scheduled to arrive that day from Tripoli. They were operating undercover as part of a Red Crescent medical team, a doctor, male nurses, medics, administrator, and undoubtedly thought that Americans didn't have a clue as to who they were. At least that's what the chief of base had surmised from the intercepted comms. Now, remember, they were coming in as an undercover Red Crescent medical team. Does that sound like the White Helmets? I'm telling you, the information that I've seen, I know Sebastian Gorka and some of these other people want to poo-poo the idea that the White Helmets are this rogue Al-Qaeda terrorist group. They are. I've seen plenty of information behind the scenes to... Feel confident that that's the case. And they were doing the same thing with Iran into Iraq with the Red Crescent medical team. And this individual knew that the Red Crescent team included operations officers 
the Iranians had dispatched to Benghazi to carry out an attack on the diplomatic compound. This was a big one. They were all waiting for. The CIA chief of base didn't know whether their plan was to kidnap the ambassador, kill him, hire locals to drive car bombs through the perimeter, or what. All we knew, and all he knew, they were the bad guys, and they had come to fulfill his worst nightmares. Over the next hour or so, the chief deputy received a steady stream of reports over the tactical radio from the Zintan militia, the guys at the airport, on the progress of the hit team. The plane had landed in the Bania International Airport. They packed into a convoy of red crescent vehicles, each painted white with a large, bright red Islamic crescent painted on the doors and the roof, the Muslim version of the Red Cross. They were en route to Tabesti Hotel. The chief had a second team waiting in separate vehicles outside the track and to keep a track of them once they left the airport. Everything was going like clockwork. After the Iranians freshened up the hotel, they went out again for a little dinner and local Red Crescent guys. Um, it was a protocol event because they were in the middle of Ramadan, the Muslim month of fasting during the daytime, and they didn't actually sit down to dinner until late. Then at one in the morning, it happened. All of a sudden, the deputy chief jumped up from where he had been dozing off. His guys were going nuts. The ruckus got the uh, chief's attention. What's going on? What are they saying? He asked. The deputy translated the excited shrieks from the trackers. It seemed the Red Crescent team had been headed back to the Tabesti Hotel when they were ambushed by a half a dozen Toyota pickups with 50 caliber machine guns mounted on the beds. The militia guys forced the Iranians to get out, cuffed them, bundled them into a pair of Jeep Cherokees and sped off. Our guys decided it was more prudent not to follow him, he said. So they're gone, the chief said. That's it. Kidnapped. For the next 24 hours or so, the chief's network of agents in Benghazi was unable to find out where the Iranians had been taken or who was holding them. Then, according to Dylan Davies, the former British special operative uh, grunt who managed the unarmed security detail at the U.S. diplomatic compound, a local fixer learned that they were being held in a former Libyan army camp outside of town on Tripoli Road. They're getting fed. They have their own beds, even. They're fine, he told Davies. The fixer claimed that it was a Shia-Sunni thing. There were some who think that those Iranian Shias are not welcome here, he said, but they have perfectly, uh, but they're perfectly okay. Davies said he learned a few days later that the CIA chief of base had tasked his former special forces security team with launching a hostage rescue, perhaps with the goal of interrogating the Iranians in the privacy of their armored Mercedes G wagons. At the last minute, Davies' fixer told them that the Iranians had already been set free and put on a plane for Tripoli en route to Tehran. Mate, cancel the cavalry, he told the chief diplomatic security officer compound. They left yesterday on a flight to Tehran. When the Americans expressed surprise at how he got this information, he said that his fixer's cousin worked at the airport. He saw all seven of them fly out of here. But Davies and the CIA chief of base got played. So what they learned was the two former Iranian intelligence officers each had their own active network of contacts inside Iran, some of whom continue to work in senior positions in the Iranian regime. That's um, what they learned from these two individuals. They corroborated their initial information with multiple Western intelligence sources that are not in contact with them. The CIA chief of base was correct that the Red Crescent team included undercover Quds Force officers who had been sent to carry out a terrorist attack 
against the United States. In fact, this guy's uh, Iranian sources said the orders were to kidnap or kill the U.S. ambassador to Libya to send a message to the United States that they could act against them at anywhere and at any time in the Middle East. But as they were getting ready to set out the plan in motion, the resident Quds Forces team in Benghazi learned from its own intercepts of the annex, tactical comms, that the Red Crescent cover had been blown and the CIA was on to them. So they decided to take the entire group off the streets, staging a kidnap in order to convince the chief of base that the danger was over. The team in operational command in Benghazi were Qasim Soleimani's people, the former Baghdad deputy chief said. They were a mature, experienced, operational element from Iran. These guys are the very first thing. They are the varsity squad. They are first stringers, and they were playing for keeps. McGuire had matched wits with Soleimani, the Quds Force commander, for two years in Iraq and came away with healthy respect for his capabilities. He is talented, charismatic. His people are competent and well-trained. They have all of the operational traits we used to have, and they're committed to fight this fight for the long haul. Not anymore. Not when you're being brought back in the back of a pickup truck made in America. So Soleimani has a replacement now, and they picked this guy for particular reasons to intimidate Iraqi protesters and the Kurds, protesters across the Shia Crescent. This guy, I think it's Ismail Ghani. What is he known for? He carried out the execution of every military-aged male in the Kurdish province of Sananja in 1981, down to 10-year-old boys. I mean, this is from Michael Pregnant. When Ismail Ghani enters Iraq, Kurdistan, he'll be there to remind them what the Islamic Republic does to dissenters and what he did. When he tries to enter Iraq to intimidate the Iraqi people, he is a legitimate military target for the Iraqi security forces. The problem is Soleimani's militias, now his militias, have and have had primacy over the Iraqi security forces since Prime Minister Maliki made that so in 2011. The COR vote was not a vote to exit the U.S. It was a vote to annex Iraq to Iran. So they voted to kick Americans out, the American forces out of Iraq, but what they really were voting for was something different, and that was to align Iran and Iraq together, which they basically have been doing. And so this replacement, this is from the Daily Wire, he threatens... Actions will be taken. Serious actions. Ishmael Ghani, who has been chosen to replace General Qasim Soleimani by Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, appeared on Iranian TV to threaten the United States. God the Almighty has promised to get his revenge, and God the, is the main avenger. Certain actions will be taken, Ghani said, according to the Associated Press. On Meet the Press, Secretary Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, detailed the massive number of deaths orchestrated by Ghani's predecessor, who Pompeo stressed was a designated terrorist. We've all known about Qasim Soleimani for a long time. He is a terrorist. He's been a designated terrorist, uh, terrorist, said Pompeo. He's someone who's inflicted many deaths on Americans, over 600 in Iraq and countless in other places. He was even connected to what happened in Beirut many years ago. Well, this guy has now been replaced by Ghani, and he has boasted his country's suppo- uh, supposed advantage over the United States, declaring the troops have suffered more losses from us than we've suffered from them, according to Fox News. 
Reuters noted Ghani was quoted by Iranian media as saying in 2017 that the United States President Donald Trump threats against Iran will damage America. We have buried many like Trump and know how to fight against America. So we got this new guy in and, and Iran's out there going on about how they're not going to follow the nuclear deal anymore. And were they ever? I mean, and then you've got this guy out there talking about trying to equivocate foreign policy with living in a farmhouse. This guy had this tweet. I can't even find it right now. It's so ridiculous. He basically said, you know, when we were growing up and we lived in the farmhouse, we saw the wasp nest and we respected it. We didn't throw rocks at it. Um, you know what we do out here in, in, in the Virginia countryside? We take a big old spray and we douse that spray and watch all the wasps fall and die. And that's basically what we did here with Iran. We're doing it more and more. There was other hits that were happening uh, over by the Baghdad Air Base. And now we have this issue with Al-Shabaab that maybe we'll go into where we had some military members killed in Kenya. But we have to realize these terrorists, they're all pretty well linked. And what we did to Soleimani needed to be done. All those people afraid about some sort of war happening, they are all just projecting their hate of orange man bad onto a military exercise that had to be done. He didn't need to get congressional approval to conduct a military strike. He's commander-in-chief. He does need to get approval to officially go to war. Now, after Soleimani was driven in an American pickup truck to the airport, he and some of the other people that were taken out that were a part of his entourage were placed in coffins. They look like makeshift, <laughs> like, I don't know, like uh, little trunks that were painted with Persian colors and things like that. Well, they ended up, and this is from a video that was being shown around, they ended up flying them back to Iran in coach. <laughs> the coffins are sitting on the seats. There's an in-flight movie. I think it was, what, Sixth Sense? You know, I think Kasim uh, Soleimani sitting there with his buddies going, oh, yes, I love this movie. I love this movie. I see de dead people. Ugh. Yeah. So Soleimani um, gets flown back in coach because I think Iran's economy is really not doing that well. They couldn't even pay for, you know, the first class or the, the meal. So they got flown back in coach. And the media hot takes, they just never end. And I know we talked about this on the last show. But they just keep going. Listen to Nikki Haley talk about this. You don't see anyone standing up for Iran. You're not hearing any of the Gulf members. You're not hearing China. You're not hearing Russia. The only ones that are mourning the loss of Soleimani are our Democrat leadership and our That's Democrat sad. presidential candidates. No one else in the world because they knew that this man had evil veins. They knew what he was capable of and they saw the destruction and, and the lives lost based from his hands. I mean, listen to this. This is from, um, I think this is from New York Times. And it says, that rehearsal feels like it was all in preparation for today. Last week, an American drone strike incinerated Iran's top general and... National war hero, Major General Qasim Soleimani, or Qasem Soleimani, along with it, senior Iraqi military uh, militia commander in what can be only understood as an act of war. <laughs> and then you've got this from the AP, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, 
wept openly at the funeral for General Qasim Soleimani. His tears gave insight into how the death of the commander killed and a U.S. strike is being felt personally by the Supreme Leader. That's, that's unbelievable. They're going on about how the Ayatollah is crying over this guy being killed. He's crying because his military might just died in one strike. Everything that is in his military command is gone. They don't have a Navy. They don't have a Marines. They don't have, they've got, all they've got is terrorist factions. And this guy was at the top. And he was the orchestration of many events. He's the mastermind. And that guy's poof, gone. So, I mean, I'm sure they had people waiting in the wings, like the guy we just talked about, Ishmael uh, Ghani or whatever. But are they going to be as talented and as effective as this guy? Who knows? The interesting part is how ABC News last night was waxing ecstatic about, look at the billions and billions of people. We haven't seen this in, since the 1980s in Iran. They're all out there. And they're all mourning the death of Kasim Soleimani. You had one of the correspondents walking through with a hijab on, going through the crowd, talking about how, how somber it is and how, and, and all these people come behind him and they're screaming, death to America, death to America. And I'm sitting there watching this with my wife going, this is pure propaganda. Well, come to find out, in southern Iraq, Iran-backed militias opened fire on civilians refusing to attend a ceremony for the now-dead IRGC Quds Force Chief Qasem Soleimani. All the while, the New York Times will describe him as a popular general. And it doesn't stop there. They, there was like a, a 35 people killed, 45 injured in a stampede at the funeral of Qasem Soleimani. So while we see what we see on our news... Look at the millions of people in the streets mourning and they're mad at America. You killed our top general. We will get you death to America. They're not talking about how many of them were coerced by the military of Iran. They're not talking about the Iraqi cheers and uh, adulation coming. I mean, they have people in the streets cheering and, you know, just praising what had happened. Even though we're looking to possibly pull out, even though we're also sending troops over there, I don't know what's going on with that. There's been conflicting notes about us leaving, but then at the same time, we're re-upping our special forces over there. So who knows? I say we get it done. We do one of two things. We either take Iraq and make it the 51st state, take their oil, and then, you know, they get to live vicariously through our democracy, our constitutional republicanism, through, uh, you know, freedom that we would provide or you eliminate the top threats and you get the hell out of there you can't nation build obviously because somebody like you Maliki you put somebody else in there he's going to be the same thing so we have to rethink our policy in Iraq this is Adrian Slade the Adrian Slade broadcast you issued a statement calling, calling Soleimani a murderer. Later, you issued a second statement saying that he was, quote, an assassination of a senior foreign military official. Now, this is a man who obviously is responsible for hundreds of American troops, deaths, carnage that we can't even imagine. The Treasury Department and the State Department have both ne designated the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the flip-flop. 
I, I don't understand why it was so hard to call him a terrorist, and I would just like you to explain. So, uh, I, and I appreciate it, and I appreciate your kind comments. You know, all three of my brothers yes, served in the yes. military. We've talked and about I believe this you, before. No, yes, no. I believe you respect the and, military. And, and I know you do, too. Mm -hmm. um, this isn't a change. They're true. The question is, what is the response that the President of the United States should make and what advances the interests of the United States of America. Think about Saddam Hussein. Mm. You want to talk about a, a bad guy, right? <laughs> However, going to war in Iraq was not in the interests of the United States. Mm. We lost thousands of American lives. It cost us here at home. It has cost us around the world. It has been a part of this cost in the Middle East that has ended up with millions of people who've lost their lives, who've been injured, uh, who've been displaced. The question for the President of the United States is to understand what's going on, have an overall strategy, and pick an appropriate response. And going back to Cody's question, that is a terrorist. Time. He's part of a group that has but been is he designated. A terrorist? He is part of a group that's been designated. So he's not a of course, he is. He's okay. part of a group that our federal government has designated as a terrorist. The question, though is what's the right response and the response that donald trump has picked is the most incendiary and has moved us right to the edge of war and that is not in our long-term interest that's a presidential front runner being grilled on the view by megan mccain who i'm not a fan of uh, for obvious reasons but to listen to her flip-flop around do you want that as president and she's like, well, he was an assassin, but he's not. And then this equivocation with Saddam Hussein. Here's the difference, okay? The first difference is Saddam Hussein was the leader of the country and was actually holding certain sectarian terrorist groups at bay because of his rule. And we eliminated him and the place went to crap. And then, of course, we had to fix it by putting Maliki in there, who was Shia, you know, uh, aligned. And brought in Iran. So now we're in the situation we're at. By the way, that letter that said we were going to pull out of Iraq was actually fabricated and leaked by our military uh, officials. So obviously the swamp isn't drained. We haven't eliminated all those leakers and those people that are subverting our commander in chief, throwing them under the bus. So that needs to be addressed. But on top of that, this guy who we executed was or we assassinated he was a terrorist leader again iran doesn't have a traditional military body yeah they call him a general they've got the quds forces which are different pockets of cells of it's like al-qaeda al-nusra the same thing can be said for the quds forces it's hamas it's hezbollah you know it's it's all of those so this guy being taken out was the guy is an evil evil I mean, I, we're going to get into some of the some of the horrific things that he's done. And you're going to go, uh, this guy wasn't some revered general. But for some reason, the news media just has to go on and on about how great this guy is. Listen, listen to this. New York Times. Knowing General Soleimani was out there made me feel safer, said a student about the commander killed in an American air, uh, drone strike. He was like a security umbrella above our country. And they did a podcast on this guy. And then here is where you can juxtapose 
a few deaths that happened recently, a few notable ones with how the treatment is of Soleimani, because a lot of people are going, well, you know, they're just kind of reporting the news. All right. So you had two notable deaths, Sam White, Cincinnati, Cincinnati Bengals coach who led him to the Super Bowl and legendary radio broadcaster, Don Imus, who passed away. Listen to the headlines for Kasim Soleimani from the New York Times obituaries. Kasim Soleimani, master of Iran's intrigue and force, dies at 62. So how do they treat Sam White? Who is, this is how they said Sam White, who was the last coach to lead the Cincinnati Bengals to the Super Bowl, but who was later fined by the National Football League for barring a female reporter from the team's locker room, has died. How did they treat Don Imus? Well, Obviously, we know where they went with this one. Don Imus, who died on December 27th, was hailed by some as, broad, as a broadcasting pioneer. But he was also remembered and called to account for racist, anti-Semitic, and misogynist slurs that ultimately cost him his job and his perch atop national media. Um, you tell me the difference. Chuck Schumer, they found an old tweet of Chuck Schumer talking about Obama drone striking individuals from Al-Qaeda. <laughs> Listen to this. Killing of Abu Yana al-Libi is a huge blow to al-Qaeda and evidence that President Obama's bold and decisive drone strike policy is working. Really? <laughs> so this is, and, and speaking of the Obama administration, Listen to this. Uh, first, we got to play Susan Rice. Remember, Susan Rice was the one running around with the YouTube video when Benghazi happened. Oh, they were mad about the innocence of Islam or whatever that st uh, stupid movie was that that guy made in California. They threw him in jail as a scapegoat. No one has ever seen the movie. Um, all these people just suddenly magically got pissed on September 11th, 2012, on the anniversary of 9-11. And we talked about how Suleiman, uh, was, or Suleimani was basically laying the groundwork for that attack. This is what Susan Rice had to say about what they had to do with uh, the possibility of taking out someone like Soleimani from the Obama administration back in, back in that tenure. There's been a bunch of reporting um, over a period of years um, that the U.S. had previously assessed that it could be more dangerous to kill Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force in Iran, uh, than to allow him to live, even when U.S. forces did potentially have a shot at him. I just wanted to ask, there's a lot of discussion about that reporting now that this airstrike has happened and that Soleimani is dead. What's your, what can you tell us in a non-classified setting here about that reporting, whether it's accurate, and, and is there any reason that we should think that that calculation somehow changed before this airstrike? Well, to my knowledge, Rachel, uh, and certainly while I was national security advisor, the Obama administration was not presented with an opportunity by our intelligence community or by the U.S. military to strike Qasem Soleimani. Um, had we been presented with such an opportunity, what we would have done is weighed very carefully and very deliberately the risks versus the potential rewards. We would have assessed all of the ways in which uh, this could enhance our security and degrade our security. And I think uh, judging from what I know and from what we've, we're likely to see, I think that there's real reason to believe that in all likelihood, the benefits will be outweighed 
by the risks. So, yeah, Susan Rice is going, we need to assess the situation, outweigh the pros and cons, see what the right course of action is. Maybe we can blame it on another YouTube video. Maybe we can make up a lie and say that it was something that, uh, you know, we were unaware of. Well, <laughs> look at this from Town Hall. Flashback. Israel planned to kill Soleimani, but the Obama administration put an end to the operation. <laughs> I kid you not. According to a January 28 report from an Israel newspaper, Haaretz, which I read every once in a while, leaders in Israel were prepared to kill Soleimani back in 2015, but the Obama administration put an end to the plan. Just as Israel was, quote, on the verge of killing Soleimani, the Obama administration alerted Iranian officials about Israel's plan and their close tracking of the military leader. In January 2018, Trump administration gave Israel to go ahead to kill Soleimani should they get the chance. According to a source who spoke to the Kuwaiti newspaper Al Jarida, there is an American-Israeli agreement that Soleimani is a threat to the two countries' interest in the region. It really isn't surprising to learn that the Obama administration intervened to keep Soleimani alive. President Barack Obama never stood by Israel, even though the country is considered the United States' greatest ally in the Middle East. Tyler O'Neill at PJ Media noted on an important tidbit about the revelation, yet the news that the Obama administration's assassination prevented Israel from assassinating the Quds force leader seems particularly significant since the Obama administration also kept a list of approximately 500 American soldiers who were murdered by Iranian IEDs. Since the Quds force spearheads Iran's operations outside the Islamic Republic, Soleimani would be arguably responsible for all those deaths. That, how are we praising this guy? I know I talked about this on the last show, and I wanted to go through more of the media love fest because I think I needed to wrap a bow on this little love gift. You know, I think I needed to put some exo, exo smiley faces on the love letter that is from our media over to, over to the Ayatollah and Soleimani. Listen to, listen to this from CBN News. Just how evil was Tehran's former top terror chief, Qasem, uh, Qasem Soleimani? While reporting in Iraq in 2015, Dan Andros came face to face with his brand of terrorism, and it's been seared in his mind ever since, he says. In 2015, I went to Iraq to report on the state of ISIS after one year had passed since they unleashed a murderous, uh, murderous reign of violence against the Iraqi people. I met the family in the picture that he posted above at an IDP camp outside of Erbil, Iraq. The father explained their desperate situation, homeless because of the latest ISIS reign of terror. His body was severely burned. His son lay silent on the cot in the tent. When we asked things about what was going on, he explained how Iranian Shia militias had killed his wife, tortured him and his children, including his young boy. The militias, who would have been under the control of the Qasim Soleimani uh, regime, proceeded to drill holes in the boy's legs as means to further threaten the father. The boy stared silently at the ceiling, seemingly void of all emotion. Dad explained that he still has nightmares daily and often soiled himself because of them. Listening to the details of such horrific violence and seeing the result of it face-to-face -face was hard enough to go through. One can only imagine what it was like to actually live through it. Qasim Soleimani was in charge of about 15,000 in Iran's Quds Force, which is mainly responsible for military operations that take place out of the country. 
guy's an evil, evil bastard. And it's good he's gone. And we have to also think back to when the Iranian uh, lawmaker basically told everybody something that had happened done under Obama's administration, that Obama granted citizenship to 2,500 Iranians during nuclear talks, including family members of regime officials. <laughs> I mean, why are we playing with Iran like this? Why were we playing with Iran like this? The Iranian regime offered an $80 million bounty for anyone who would bring the head of Donald Trump for killing Qasem Soleimani, to which George Lopez, the comedian who he used to be funny, I don't know what the hell happened to him, said he would do it for half, half price. But so it may be easier than expected for the regime to attack targets inside the United States. And Trump tweeted about that. But the Trump administration got the information about the Iranian official uh, and this whole situation with Obama administration granting citizenship to 2,500 Iranians pretty recently, including uh, family members of government officials while negotiating the Iran nuclear deal. 2,500 Iranians were given citizenship. Hajat al-Islam Motaba Zanir, who is the chairman of Iran's parliamentary, uh, parliamentary Nuclear Committee and the member of its National Security and Foreign Affairs Committee, made the allegations during an interview with the country's Eternad newspaper. He claimed that it was done as a favor to senior Iranian officials linked to President Hassan Rouhani. It's unbelievable. But that's what we're dealing with. And we have individuals like Elizabeth Warren running for president who could make uh, bad choices in, in regards to national security for the United States. We have her acting as though, well, you know, he's an evil terrorist, but he's not a terrorist. He was just a bad leader and we shouldn't be assassinating leaders. Bernie Sanders was out there saying the same thing. You can't treat this guy as a traditional governmental official. Why is there military operations being conducted by Iran outside of Iran? Because they're terrorist organizations. It's no, it's not more difficult to think of than that. So we have to look at the fact that we eliminated somebody that was pretty uh, pertinent to the grand scheme of Iran. He was pretty uh, locked in. He was somebody very important to the Iranian military forces, and he's dead now. And they don't know what to do. And until they figure out on their end how to come back on us, we have to be vigilant and watch wherever Hezbollah and Hamas are. And we're going to get into an older article that I referenced not too long ago, probably about a year or so ago that I stumbled across, that gives a chilling picture of Hezbollah and Hamas operating with MS-13 drug cartels on our southern border. I don't want to spend any more time than we have to on news media bias because we know the news media is going to do whatever it can to throw America under the bus. And anything that Trump does is orange man bad. But there was still another take. It's instructive because you have to know what these people, what their mindset is, what their goals are. What, what do these people uh, really want from their propaganda? And I kid you not, this is an actual, this is Time Magazine. Person of the year, all that crap. Time Magazine, listen to this. An actual post. If you need help talking with the children in your life about the aftermath of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani's killing, At Time for Kids has a guide explaining the topic. 
So they're going to help you talk to your kids about what happened in Iran, as if your kids even freaking know. So let's be sure to talk about them being drilled in the legs by this guy with a Black & Decker. The kiddies won't even be able to sleep at night ever again. I mean, I can see it now. (laughs) They're going, hey, Daddy, um, why did Trump kill that guy in Iran? Well, son, um, if he was still alive, he might take a DeWalt drill, throw a drill bit on it, and, uh, you know, just chip away at your fibula. (laughs) I mean, what the heck? That's a real tweet. Foreign policy had Americans painted him as a hardliner. But for Iranians, Soleimani was an apolitical patriot. Yeah, an apolitical patriot. And what's crazy is you should see this video that's been going around of the Ayatollah having a a, a bitch fit, for lack of a better term. He is flipping out. He's throwing his hat everywhere. He's, I mean, he hissy fit like you have never seen. And I, I'm telling you, it is because we made a major dent in their military might. That's what happens when you place all your faith in one individual. But we have to also be worried about any sort of response. And one of the responses that we have to look towards is Hezbollah, which falls under the Iranian wing. Hezbollah is in our backyard. They are down the street from us, unfortunately. And they, and when I say down the street, I'm talking about the right on the uh, southern border. This is from the independent UK. And I talked about this once before. Members of Hezbollah's European arm have been arrested by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration on suspicion of using millions of dollars from cocaine sales to buy weapons in Syria. A worldwide drug trafficking ring worth millions of dollars linking Hezbollah, the Lebanese militant group under Iran, with Latin American cartels has been undercover or uncovered by American authorities. Members of the, militia, uh, the militant group have been arrested by the DEA on suspicion of using money from the, sca- from the sale of cocaine in the United States and Europe to buy weapons in Syria. Those arrested include leaders of the network's European cell who were taken into custody and a statement was put out. Among them was Mohammed Noradini, who the DEA accuses of being a Lebanese money launderer for Hezbollah's financial arm. The U.S. has labeled Nouradini as a specially designated global terrorist. The U.S. designates Hezbollah, which has been sending troops and arms to support President Bashar al-Assad in the Syrian civil war, a terrorist organization. The investigation once again highlights the dangers of a global nexus between drug trafficking and terrorism. Is there any wonder why we are in Afghanistan for decades? Is there any wonder why there's an opiate problem in the United States and the poppy fields in Afghanistan is how you make opium? Is there any wonder that the British destroyed China decades and decades and centuries ago through an opium war? Is there any wonder why we have an opium crisis again? I say it again, because we have terrorists using it as a soft jihad. Seven countries, including France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, were involved in the continuing investigation into Hezbollah's international activities, dubbed Project Cassandra, that began in 2015. You know who stopped Project Cassandra? Barack Obama. The statement added members of the Hezbollah have established business relationships with South American drug cartels, such as La Oficina de Envigado, 
responsible for supplying large quantities of cocaine to the European and United States drug markets. So, and Project Cassandra was dismantled by President Obama, who is the guy who is responsible for the Iran deal that luckily Trump destroyed, who was giving pallets of cash to the Iranians, who was John Kerry, Secretary of State, Remember, the State Department meddling in different countries, trying to overthrow them with revolutionaries and using social media as a way to unite under a, quote, leaderless uh, group. John Kerry, who took over for Hillary Clinton, they're all involved in this. And when this comes out, I really believe this is one of the reasons why you have the FBI falling on them swords. You have the DOJ, the State Department, the NSA. You know, you have all these people that are fighting against somebody coming in on the outside like Donald Trump, because what is he going to see when he opens up that Pandora's box? Now, truly, I wasn't trying to do the entire show on Soleimani since I did the abbreviated show on it. But there was a lot of developments that needed to be uh, talked about. There was a lot of misinformation that was out there. There was a lot of things that went under the radar that needed to be brought to light so that you're understanding is a little bit different. You have a clear view of what is really going on. On the Virginia gun front, we talked about this on our final show of 2019. You can go back and listen to it. Basically, we had elections. We have a governor, Blackface Northam, Ralph Northam, that wants to kill kids when they're coming out of the womb, make them comfortable. Well, we ended up getting a majority of Democrats in the state legislature. So now they're wanting to pass everything under the sun. And one of the top things they wanted to do is pass sweeping gun control measures on semi-automatics and uh, high-capacity magazines and all that crap, assault weapons, whatever that means. Well, one of the things that they did was in doing so, and with the threat of these things coming through the state legislature, the counties started to say, no, we ain't having that. We are going to become what is called Second Amendment sanctuary cities or sanctuary counties or cities or municipalities. Culpeper County was going to deputize all of the citizens if the state government decided to come through and confiscate. And they were kicking around from the state level that they would get the National Guard to come in and take down, you know, those who weren't law abiding in the confiscation. So they're really setting a bad precedent, and this is going to be a battle. And one of the things that was interesting is city by city, they're coming through to declare themselves through resolutions as a sanctuary Second Amendment city. Now, here in Virginia Beach, we had our resolution on Monday night, and it was amazing. Six to four, they passed it. And what I thought was really great was Mayor Bobby Dyer, he actually had the best uh, view of this whole sanctuary Second Amendment uh, city thing. He said, I don't want to call it a sanctuary city for Second Amendment. I want to call it a Second Amendment constitutional city. Because when you're saying sanctuary city, your intent is that you need sanctuary from not following the law. You need sanctuary for doing something that is unlawful. And he thinks that that was a slippery slope. What he wanted to do is change 
the marketing moniker, you know, change the branding. Because constitutionally, we are given these rights already. We just need to make sure that the state of Virginia doesn't take them away. So when you declare yourself as a Second Amendment constitutional city or constitutional locality, Virginia Beach is one of the few cities that's a city and county together. They're not a city within a county. Well, that's what they did. And the line was out the door. You can see the pictures online. Um, There was a lot of Trump supporters out there. There was a lot of uh, Republican Tea Party groups, a lot of support for guns, not much support for anti-guns there. And it passed six to four. And they're going to send that resolution over to the state. It's non-binding, but it's kind of a show of, hey, we're going to follow the Constitution because like the council members said, like Mayor Dyer said, that was our Uh, that's what our oath was. Our oath was to follow the Constitution and be it the state Constitution or the federal Constitution and the Code of Virginia, the Code of Virginia Beach. They stood up against sweeping gun control, and I'm proud of my city for doing so. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning into the show. Listen to us on Mojo 50 Radio. You can find that on iHeartRadio or go to mojo50.com. Every Wednesday, 10 p.m. Also, get the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart, Overcast, wherever podcasts are hosted. And be sure to give us a review. Give us a good five-star review that's going to help us go up in the ratings so we're more visible to others. You can also donate to the show. Go to patreon.com slash Show. Give $2 a month or go to anchor.fm and search Adrian Slade. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Gab, MeWe, Parler, Convo, Snippy. Search Adrian Slade. Follow us on Twitter at Rants Out Loud or at Adrian Slade Show, which is the official show page on Twitter. And you can also read the blog, adriansladeshow.com. You can also get the Adrian Slade Show Roku channel in your streaming store on the Roku streaming channel store. Be sure to download the Adrian Slade Show Roku channel. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in.